So Levi and Clayton are leaving early tomorrow morning, but if you have questions, you can direct them to me, and then Levi will be back, of course, because Doug and Kim and Molly and Sam and the whole Hogger clan are here, and uh, it's a great program. And yeah, Clayton and Molly open up their home. Uh, he packs in four guys into their basement so they can see what it is to watch a, a husband and wife raise four kids, and it's all in the context of a local church, and it's an exciting program. So thank you all for what you're doing. So before I started school, uh, my family lived in Egan, Louisiana, which is on I-10 between Lake Charles and Lafayette. And dad was working at a conical oil refinery and mom was living in this tiny hut. And she talks about the snakes and the mosquitoes and the spiders. But the way I was blessed in Egan was our next door neighbors that we knew as Mima and Peepaw, and that's actually what the grandkids call mom and dad now, kind of took me in. And so they built a special little ladder for me to crawl over the fence. And then they left their back porch open so she would bake biscuits for me so that I could come in and just anytime open the door, grab a biscuit. And when I couldn't quite reach the porch, they built a little step for me to be able to climb up and to get the biscuits. And this little couple just took me in and mom who was alone while dad was working crazy hours at the refinery were great neighbors. And then uh, when we moved to Denton and the kids began to grow up and they were about the same age I was at this time, we had this couple across the street or, or right next door and they, the kids couldn't see over the fence. And so they would just shout when they saw kind of the body motion through the slats, they would call out, hey neighbor. And the people would cry back, hey neighbor. And they just adopted the kids and they would bring food over and various things over and they hey neighbored each other to this day. And when we moved out of Egan, whoever moved in next door, I know this couple just immediately started loving and adopting. They may not let them walk in the door at all hours, but they just brought them in because they were neighborly people. And if we moved off, uh, Mark and Lori would adopt whoever came in next. They have on either side of them and the people up and down the street. Whatever couple or family God brings providentially next to them, if they're within vicinity, they're going to begin loving them, taking care of them. And now we have Scott and Teresa next door and uh, they were swapping food and our daughter Rachel came back one time with a plate full of food. She goes, the food exchange is for real. <laughs> and if we moved out, they would begin loving and serving whoever God providentially placed next because they're great neighbors. And it doesn't have to do with who the person is. If you're within arm's reach, they're going to start loving you. If you're in the vicinity, they're going to start caring for you. If God has placed you in their path, then they're going to help you any way they can. And that is what God intends. That's what Christians are intended to be, is to be neighborly, not just to this or that person who happens to be like us or who we like, but because they're present. Because God has providentially placed us in each other's path for however brief it is, we want to begin loving them and serving them and caring for them. Because this is the second great love commandment. And so last week we talked about the first great love commandment of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That there is none so lovely as God in His character. There is none so loving as God in His actions. And the right response that we have is to love Him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. But it doesn't stand alone. It's not just something we do in a private devotion or when we gather for worship. God attaches that with the second love commandment, which is loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so we're going to begin on page 16 of the three great love commandments. If you don't have a book, there's a box of them up here that you're welcome to grab. 
the church has provided them. And we are going to briefly look at the most famous account of loving our neighbors. And then we're going to answer three questions. Who is my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor? And why should I love my neighbor? Which is often the most challenging part of that. So as far as getting going, we need to begin in Luke chapter 10. You have a portion of that in your book, but I'll begin in the preceding paragraph in Luke chapter 10. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the first part of that comes from Deuteronomy 6. But then the second part comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And already this had become attached. Because when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, they were in two tablets. And the first four commands had to do with loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But those were intended to overflow into loving our neighbors ourselves, which were the commands 5 through 10. And these were to be a combination deal. And so Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with a parable. Now Bob preached this a couple of months ago, so we'll be able to move relatively quickly through it. But this is the classic account that we need to remind ourselves of because of the challenge it presents to us every time we hear it or read it. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So this is a 17-mile road descending about 2,800 feet, winding and twisting and turning through a barren land which made way for caves for bandits to seize people who might be traveling on the road. And for whatever reason, he's traveling alone, and he was attacked by ruthless bandits who stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. He is physically assaulted. He is stripped of his clothing, which in the hostile ancient Near Eastern thing, we don't know what time of year this was, but that could have exposed him to the elements of either blistering sun in the day or frigid cool at night. And he's lying there. His only hope is someone coming across and lending aid. And by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. And then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. So the first man, the priest, sees him and immediately crosses over not to come close, whether he was fearing uh, being made ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean or fear of attack by bandits himself who may have thought that he had been left there as a trap. He skirts the man and moves on his way. The second one comically actually comes and looks at him and stares at him and seeing that, yes, this is a beaten man in bad need of need, in bad need of care, moves around and goes the other way. And then a despised Samaritan came along. Now, Samaritans were despised, one, because they were considered traitors to Israel. When the Assyrians took the northern ten tribes of Israel captive, those remaining in the land intermarried with the Assyrians. And so the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. 
and those who hadn't obeyed God's command to only marry and have children within the other Hebrew people. But then also they began to worship differently on Mount Gerizim rather than on Jerusalem. And they had their own traditions. And so these people were viewed as heretics, traitors, and half-breeds. But he came along, and he also saw the man. But unlike the other two, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, he soothed his wounds with olive oil and bandaged them. And he put the man on his own donkey and walking took him to an inn where he took care of him. And so once they arrive at the inn, he begins caring for this man in his needs. And then when he needs to continue his journey the next day, he went to the innkeeper, gave him two silver coins and said, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So seeing someone on the road, he took him to the ER, and when they said, who's going to be financially responsible for this? He said, I am, and here's my credit card. Do whatever you need to do to take care of the man, and I'm not just abandoning him, I'll be back to check up on him, and if anything more is due, I'll take care of this. And this for a complete stranger that he knew nothing about. He might have been able to guess his race, he would have known his age, but there was nothing on him that would have indicated his station, whether this was an affluent person that he could expect some gratitude from later. All he saw was a person in need, and that was enough for him to begin selflessly, sacrificially, and at risk to himself and at expense to himself, serving someone simply because he was in need and God had placed him in his path. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so the first question that this parable raises that is asked by the lawyer is, who is my neighbor? And if you want to turn to page 18 of your book, the answer to that is, whomever God places in your path that's in need. Not just those that are like us, not just those that like us and that we like them, not just those that we can expect gratitude and repayment for, if God has placed them before us, then we are to begin serving them to the extent that we can while we can. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, You have heard the law say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. So this beautiful day today wasn't just for those that knew God and loved him, like some Goshen in Denton, that we had stormy clouds and rain over here and blue skies and lovely temperature here because God loved us more than them. God is indiscriminate in the way that he sends his son and his rain and his blessings on the good and the wicked alike. And we, being God's children, are to be equally indiscriminate in our love. If we're able to help, if we're able to serve, then we open hand and open arm try to help and serve because that's who our God is. If they're there and they're in need, we're going to help them like a nurse at a hospital or like a social worker at a clinic. Your need is enough to warrant my aid if I can give it to the extent that I can. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? 
Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We love the unlovely because that's who our God is. And he wants us to be like him. And he loves unlovely us as well. And so we don't have to vet them to see if they're worthy of our love. If they're in front of us, then God wants us to love them. He makes it easy on us. It's simple. The person in front of you is your neighbor. And you should help them as you can as the need is there and the opportunity is there. Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get the credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. If they're in our path, if they're in our way, if God has placed us in vicinity, then God wants us to love them. And this includes the rude person on the road who's doing 10 miles slower than the speed limit or the guy roaring up behind you doing 10 miles over the speed limit. But while they're in our vicinity, they're our neighbor and we can be courteous to the discourteous. And these are the obnoxious people in the DMV line or in the Walmart line. And if they are there and we are there, then we are to love them, even if it's nothing more than giving them a smile, giving them a nod, making way for them, because that's what our God does. Uh, my son was at a grocery store one time and noticed this guy come passing all the people in the line, pushed his way to the front, and everybody's grumbling and complaining about what's going on. And he says, I'd like to buy for my groceries and everyone else behind me. So while they were angry and fuming, he was actually, and apparently that's happened several times, uh, there are those who will just simply intentionally upset the people by going to the front of a line, but then showing them the loving action of paying for everyone behind them. We don't know what they're there. He just blessed them. He didn't know who my son was. He didn't know who the group was. He was just doing a kind deed to those around him. Uh, if you've ever been around Mel Sumrall, Mel, whenever he sees a person in need, will often just say, oh Lord, that person's life must be so hard. Bless them. And I've been with Mel on a number of occasions where someone who has a physical disability or is challenged in a variety of ways, and Mel just instinctively begins to feel compassion. He saw the person, he saw the need, he felt mercy, and he begins to just utter a prayer on their behalf. And if possible, Mel begins to love and serve them. And he doesn't know anything about them, he doesn't expect ever to see them again, and it doesn't matter. If you're around Mel, you're going to get a greeting, you're going to get a hug, you're going to get a blessing because that's who Mel is, and that's who Mel's God is. So who is our neighbor? Everyone. And specifically, those whom God providentially places in our vicinity, and we try to do the good we can while we're there with them, even if it's just a smile or a nod 
And if it's more than that, we do what we can if it's wise and right to do. So how do we love our neighbor? Jesus gives two criteria or two guidelines. First, as ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we love ourselves? Well, we meet our needs. If I'm hungry, I feed myself. If I'm weary, I seat myself. If I'm bored, I distract myself. If I'm upset, I look for someone to encourage me. And so the things that we do for ourselves are a guidelines. God is such a genius that he takes our innate selfishness and uses it as a guideline for other people's blessing. If I would like that done for me, then I should do that for someone else. If I would like the front seat at an Andrew Peterson concert, theoretically, I should be willing to yield that seat to someone else coming behind. If I would appreciate the best parking spot at a grocery store, then I should be willing to yield that parking spot for someone else who might be coming with me. And God just allows us, if I would do this for myself, then I should be willing to do that for another person. And the other thing that Jesus gives us is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have done to you. So if I appreciate people looking at me when I teach and talk, once I began teaching, it made me a much better listener. Because the most terrible thing as a teacher is to look out over deadpan faces or to see people begin to doodle and nod and whisper. I was at Denton Bible Church in the old mill, and this was at the back. And I hear this click, click, click. And a guy was cutting his toenails during the service. No joke. It was the most, the fact that God didn't strike him down with lightning is just an incredible act of mercy on God. But the first time I ever preached a sermon, one of the three pieces of advice that Tom gave me, he gave me three pieces. He said, one, walk up to the front and turn and face the audience before you speak, and that way you won't get the deer in the headlights look. He said, secondly, never look beyond the first third of an audience, because in the back is where the rabble is. And that's where the people are, playing cards, surfing their phones, doing all the things. So he said, what you want to do is find a person in each section on the front, even if you have to plant them, and don't let your eyes move beyond the back half of the auditorium, or you'll get so disheartened you'll quit. And the third thing he told me was, you have to learn when to pluck and when to strum, and just how to find the rhythm of speaking. And so once I realized that, I become a more attentive, I'm more engaged, I give more visual feedback when other people preach and talk, because I know how much I appreciate that. And so Jesus says, who is your neighbor? Whomever God has placed around you. How do you serve them? Well, how do you serve yourself? How would you like them to serve you? And let those be guidelines for you. I spoke to a women's group at Denton Bible Church, and they were having certain men come in and talk to them. And the gentleman who had been there the week before, apparently every night gives his wife a foot rub with lotion while she sips tea, and he has a chocolate on her pillow. And this group of ladies were all talking among themselves, well, my scurvy dog of a husband doesn't do that. And, and at the beginning of the talk, I said, well, how many of y'all have done that for your husband in the last week, having heard what this husband did for his wife last week? Because biblically, if you want him to do it for you, then you should do it for him. And odds are, if you'll do it for him, you might start getting it for you. 
And so just the way that we want others to serve us in listening, in being courteous, in responding to an email or a text, we show them the same courteous, courteousness, and that guides us. But where we want to spend the bulk of our time and then to get some interactive feedback with and some help is why should I love my neighbors? Because most of the neighbors that we're around aren't that likable and that lovely. And it is challenging to love sinful people as a sinner because sinners aren't good at loving others and others aren't that lovely and easy to love. And so the challenge isn't knowing what Jesus told us. It's really clear and it's repeated 10 times in scripture. The challenge is in the moment doing it when everything within us doesn't want to do it. And so how do we love our neighbors as when we're not very good at loving and when oftentimes they're not that lovely? Let's look at seven reasons. I came up with five more and then we're going to solicit feedback from y'all as well. First of all, Scripture commands us to love our neighbor no less than 10 times. And so if I refuse to, I am defying God. You know, sometimes as parents, we'll look at a child and say, share your toy. And they'll say, no. And there is a defiance. And when we refuse to love the people that God puts around us, we are defying him. We are disobeying him because it is a repeated commandment in Scripture. Secondly, it's a crucial command in Scripture. Jesus said that loving our neighbor is equally important as loving God. The second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. The two commandments came together. This isn't just a command that's clear and often repeated. This is a crucially critical command that God says, I put on par, you're loving your neighbor because loving them is how you express your love for me. Thirdly, God tells his children to be like him. And when we love our enemies and pray for our persecutors and do good to evil and unjust people, we're acting like our father who is in heaven because that's what he does. We're ungrateful and demanding and complaining and God loves us anyway. And so God wants us to love ungrateful, demanding and complaining people. Uh, sometimes when I'm struggling to love someone who I feel like is unappreciative of what I'm doing and isn't acknowledging and reciprocating, it helps me to walk through in my mind that when I love the unloving, ungrateful, unacknowledging, non-reciprocating people, only then am I beginning to love like God loves me every day. Because most days I go through without appreciating God's blessings, with complaining with what I don't have or the things that I don't want, and God loves me anyway. And so I need to do the same for others. Fourthly, God rewards us when we love unloving people. Jesus said, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without respecting to be repaid, then your reward in heaven will be very great. God will pay us back when we love people who are hard to love. I was on a Zoom call that went way too long. We were about an hour and 40 minutes into what was going to be a multi-hour Zoom call. And the person on the other end was um, 
not engaging the attention of the audience. And so someone else began sending complaining texts to all of us who were there. And one of my responses to him was, but you are storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. And that's quite literally true. That when we love people who are hard to love, God says he honors that, that he'll repay that. There is payment on the other side, even if they don't acknowledge and pay us back. Fifthly, we love people for God's sake. Every person born on this planet was created by God. God made them. God loved them and he intentionally gave them life and knit them together in their mother's womb and they bear his image and we should love them for God's sake even if we don't find them lovely for our sake. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that people have done kind things for my brothers and I because they appreciated my dad and the things that he did for them. And complete strangers would take us in, open up their home, do favors for us, because dad had been kind to them and they wanted to repay dad by blessing his children. God does kind things for us and we can repay him by doing kind things for his children. And in a very specific sense, that's Christians, but God makes every person. There's no human on the planet that God did not choose to make, nor make in his image. And so we love them for the image that they bear. Uh, Mother Teresa, who worked with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, and she would every morning go out and pick up those who were dying on the streets and they had a special center so that those who were going to die could die with honor and dignity and love. And when she was interviewed about how can you love these people, many of whom the, the odors are incredible, they're physically, they're, there's leprosy, there's maggots. I mean, these are hard people to love. And she said, because Christ said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you do it to me. And when I care for them, I don't see them, I see Christ in his distressing disguise. That's a powerful phrase. That's a helpful phrase. That when you see someone in a distressing aspect, that's Christ in his distressing disguise. And she would minister to Christ. And that would enable her to love the unlovely. Sixthly, we love our neighbors because we love our Lord. God tells us to love him by loving others. And so the way that God wants us to show our love for him is by loving the people that he made and he puts in our life. We love them for his sake. And we can do that by his grace. Seventhly, loving our neighbors can help lead them to the Lord. Um, I was teaching in Vietnam one time and the pastor was sharing about this very difficult environment, especially in the early 90s when I was there because the communist government didn't allow churches, evangelism. It was a risky thing to share your faith and people were very hostile to the church. And this one man was sharing how they evangelized through serving. And in one example, a wife wanted her neighbor to come to know the Lord and she was rude and she was obnoxious and she rejected every attempt. And so every day when she swept her... Uh, step, she would go over and sweep her neighbor's step. And when she would do something for herself, she would go over and do it for the neighbor. And deed by deed and act of service by act of service, the woman began to warm because this was a stranger or someone that she didn't know whom she had been rude to and she persisted in loving her and eventually led her to the Lord. 
because the loving deeds won the way for her to give the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can lead them to the Lord. Here's a few other that I came up with before you begin to share your own. One, we don't know what that person has gone through or where they've come from. Uh, Nock and I often remark, people are utterly fascinating. And once you actually begin to hear someone's story, everybody has an amazing story. But sometimes they're amazingly hard stories. And people have gone through tragedies that we don't know and don't appreciate, but we need to cut them a lot of slack because we don't know how they were raised. We don't know what they're going through in their bodies. We don't know what's going on at home. And so we need to be gracious and patient. Uh, Jason Fanning tells the story of, he was coming down, uh, what's the road near the hospital? May Hill Road. And May Hill was under construction and so all the cars are backing up. And so the lines are long, people are frustrated. And here comes one of these bozos driving on the shoulder to cut past all the cars rather than waiting his turn on line. And so Jason does what maybe we've done is we begin scooting over to cut them off, right? Not on my watch. And so as he begins to come over and the guys get further further over, Jason successfully cuts him off. And they're able, though, to see each other. And so he rolls down the window. Jason rolls down the window. And the gentleman says, I'm sorry to be cutting, but that helicopter that just flew over was care flighting my child and I'm trying to get to the ER. May I please get through? And of course, Jason just shamefacedly <laughs> tries to get over and let him through. He didn't know that, but that was a real need. And people are going through things that we can't imagine. It sometimes helped me be kind to people because truly obnoxious people have to be very unhappy. And so sometimes when I see an especially rude person, I think that must be a very unhappy person to be that rude. And I'm only having to deal with them for this five minutes. They have to live with themselves. And, and, they, and, and that pity helps me to love them when my flesh just wants to dismiss them and deride them. Um, some of y'all have hired personal trainers to get you in condition for track or for an event of some kind. It sometimes helped me to think that this is my personal sanctification instructor. And so when you're dealing with a particularly obnoxious person, you can just think of them as your patience instructor. And so God has given us a personal spiritual trainer, and this person is working on my fill-in-the-blank. And I should be grateful that God loved me enough to make me more like himself, and rather than just getting angry, I'm going to view this person as God has placed them in my life to help me grow in this virtue, and I need to let them do their work. Otherwise, God may make the lesson continue. And so I'm just going to learn it, grow in it, and maybe God will give me a better instructor next time. Um, it helps me to think of the way that God loves me and how unlovely I am. That there's not a day that goes by that I don't take God's blessing for granted and I'm not complaining and grumbling in some way or another and that I disobey Him and I dismiss Him. And God's response, He keeps on loving me. And that helps me because the Bible says that I'm to show mercy because God has been merciful to me. And I'm to forgive because God is forgiving me. And that's not just past. He is daily merciful with me. He is daily long-suffering with me. 
He is daily forgiving of me. And so I need to be daily merciful and long-suffering and forgiving of others. And that's helpful. I'm no better than they. It's just the roles were reversed. And finally, C.S. Lewis wrote something in a sermon called The Weight of Glory that has helped me immensely at various times. This is the conclusion of a sermon about what will it mean to be taking on an eternal weight of glory and to be glorified in God's presence someday. And Lewis writes, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load, the weight, the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. If I am loving to that person, then that may be used of God to lead them to salvation and they will be glorified in the presence of God someday. If I am hateful and hurtful and harsh, especially if they know that I'm a Christian, I may be pushing them away from Christ and away from God and towards hell where they will have a horrible future awaiting them. And my actions will push them maybe in this direction or that. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Now that's a staggering thought, isn't it? Because every soul is an eternal soul in one of two places. And the way that I treat them can help push them towards one or the other of those places. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself... Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And actually, not working from his uh, church background, our neighbor is holier than what we serve in the Lord's communion because they are made in the image of God. And so these are things that at various times can help me love unlovely people when my nature as a sinner is to be selfish and to pretend to ignore them or to get out of there as quickly as I can or to find an excuse not to serve. What are some of the things that y'all have found helpful to help you overcome natural selfishness to love unlovely neighbors? If any of you do. All right. I also had a mother that when she would move into a new community, she would bake 
hey, hi, I'm your new neighbor. So I think some of yeah. that comes from my mother, but I still remember Daryl and I have had wonderful neighbors and just wonderful experiences. So I don't know how I would worship somebody. And, and maybe not just next door neighbors, but people that God brings in our path that he wants us to love but are hard to love. Yeah. Yeah, many of them are in churches. But, but no, our, our, I think of our neighbors as our neighbors. So yeah. I just, I just, there's just a lot of wonderful people out there that aren't believers yeah. that you can, you can just love. So you were raised to be neighborly. Well, yeah, but I was raised in a non-Christian home. Yeah. Nathan. <laughs> it helps you uh, remember maybe how hard it is to love you sometimes and in turn um, break down the barriers between you and loving someone else that is like if you have a friend or um, girlfriend who can love you well despite your shortcomings you should be the same way no, very so surround yourself with healthy people no. yeah Barbara yeah. And of course, we know from the Gospels, we have many examples of Jesus loving people that were, other people found hard to love. And so looking at the example of Christ, absolutely. What would Jesus do? Yeah, Sam. Yeah. Um, and just slowing down and thinking like it's not that big of a deal. And if I let that get between both of us, then you know it's gonna make the rest of both of our days worse. And if I get to love you, that can encourage both of us. Yeah. I was talking to someone here who, unlike most today, makes it a point to talk to people next to him in an airplane. And that's kind of a lost conversation are you know now everyone's got their headphones on their device open every signal we can send don't talk to me but it wasn't always like that it doesn't have to be like that and there are those that actually intentionally try to converse and it's a blessing the person's blessed and he blesses those around yeah claire And so for those listening online, uh, she was just saying that we claim that it's my time, my stuff, my, and it's not. It's God's time. It's God's stuff. And he allows us temporary stewardship of it so that we can bless others and love others. And we need to remember that. Saw another. Bob.
Yeah, so some of those are going to be rejection and hostility, and you just persist through it. For those of you with younger children, Jesse, when you get a little bit older, there's a great movie called The Secret of Jonathan Sperry. And I'm not going to tell too much other than it is a delightful account of a man who loved someone who resisted all his attempts to love him until he couldn't resist any longer and love broke through. Yeah, Carrie. Meredith and I had a great experience serving international students. Some of the folks in here served alongside of us. And one thing that, that we did was um, invited them into our celebration, Christmas, Thanksgiving, yeah. uh, rodeo, movies, uh, and just anything you could think of. And, and sometimes it was inconvenient. Um, and I remember talking to you one time about feeling like how we were taken advantage of sometimes. And I don't want to misquote you, but what I think you said was, if you're not taken advantage of sometimes, then you're probably not really serving. Is that right? I'm, I'm claiming it. Yeah. Because that sounds good. <laughs> well, no, because the origin of that story, so there was a man at Denton Bible who had a reputation for just great generosity. And he was generous to my family on one occasion, and I had lunch with him afterwards to thank him. And I asked him, I said, when you're so open-handed with your funds, aren't you taken advantage of? He said, fairly frequently, but my mindset is, one, if I'm not taken advantage of, I'm not being generous enough. And two, that's between them and God. If God wants me to give, if they take advantage of that, that's between them and God. But for my part, God wanted me to do this. And at that point, I, I let go of that. But just his response of, if I'm going to be generous... I'm going to be taken advantage of. And if I'm so concerned with not being taken advantage of that I get tight-fisted, I've swung way too far in the other direction. Yeah. Over the years, we found that we were much more blessed than, you know, than what we were giving out. It seemed like it was a, yeah. that was a wonderful season. It really is more blessed to give than receive. Although you're glad, to help, you're glad not to be helping the international students get driver's license anymore. Mm -hmm. Carrie took his life in his hands on many occasions as they were trying to pass driving exams. And it doesn't have to be big. Oh, Jesse. So Jesse was saying that sometimes what he finds irritating in other people is what irritates him about himself. And when he recognizes that, he can, well, no, I'm, I'm going to be loving to that person because I don't like that about myself. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan pastor in his resolution said, when I find something virtuous in another person resolved to try to acquire that virtue. And then it came in with a companion. When I find something obnoxious or repulsive in another person to examine myself and to see if it's there and if so, to try to eradicate it. And so sometimes that can help. But I was going to say, it doesn't have to be a big thing like the Good Samaritan. Sometimes simply a smile or sending a card or just sitting with someone, even if you don't know what to say. 
Uh, my dad takes pictures of people and then sends them that photo. And there's tens of thousands of people that have been blessed by dad because he was the only one that got a shot of that event, of that family, of that meal. And as simple as clicking a shutter and then taking the time to get it developed and send, or now it's even simpler, you just forward it on your device. You thought of me, you did something to bless me, and now I've got this forever and I wouldn't have had it. And that's a huge thing. So start small. Again, remember, Mother Teresa, don't worry about doing great things for God. Do small things with great love. And God will do great things out of that. And that's right. One more, John. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've tried to do, and it's interesting, Meredith says it's a, something I do well, is to try to look for unique opportunities, um, thinking outside the box. I bet bet there's some folks in here who could do that. I think you could be really good at that, just kind of uh, trying to bless people where they wouldn't be expecting it. Um, one thing, and, and I think it's a gift from God that, that he would give us those ideas. Yeah. Um, and I'm not boasting in this, it was just a weird thing last week. Our neighbor had a party for their son, and, uh, and there were going to be a lot of cars. And I thought, well, you know, instead of complaining about all the cars in the way, how about we move our cars down the street and let them use our driveway? Hmm. I'm not about that it was just a neat idea and, uh, and I hope it blessed him but. and so there was a big party down the street and Carrie's family moved their cars away to give their driveway up to others so they could come and rather than being irritated they found a creative way to be a blessing and that's how we need to be approaching Dina is as we walk or wherever God has us but as we drive around walk around just go through our daily life look for creative ways to love people and a lot of times it is just going to be a friendly expression, an encouraging word, a listening ear, an attentive eye, a little bit of our time, a little bit of our effort, and it goes a long way. And we love our neighbor as ourself, which is the second great love commandment. Any final thoughts as we wrap up? And Connie. So Connie was saying that before she was a Christian, sometimes people would just do small acts of kindness. And it was a great encouragement during a time of despair. And so now that she's a Christian, she wants to do small acts of kindness for others. And it's fun. And it's a blessing. And it's contagious. Because when you get that idea, so I went through a Chick-fil-A line one time. And the person said, hey, the car in front of you bought your meal. And I looked, I didn't recognize the person. And she goes, no, sometimes just people do that at Chick-fil-A. Because... Is Chick-fil-A. And she goes, would you like to buy the meal of the car behind you? And I made sure it wasn't a minivan or a bus or something. <laughs> I said, like, absolutely, I'd love to do that. And it starts getting fun. And that's the culture we want to create of just loving one another just because. And then let that spread, not just here, but into the neighborhood, into the grocery stores, into the workplaces. And God wants us to be good neighbors because then that leads our neighbors to want to become sons and daughters of God.
And then the love really gets deep and sweet, which is what we start talking about next week. So join me, please, as we close in prayer. Father, you are love. And for all eternity, you have been loving. And before we were born, before you created the heavens and the earth, you loved us in advance. And you are so indiscriminate in the way that you love this wicked world. And you allow this earth to spin at irregular rates and tilted at a 23 and a half degree angle and enveloped in an atmosphere that keeps the rays out and the warmth in. And you give water and sun and gross uh, greens and all the things that we're blessed with, even to people who deny you, defame you, shake their fist at you. And you keep loving because the kindness of God can lead to repentance. And as your children, you call us to love as well. And you tie our love for you with our love for our neighbor. And so, Lord, would you make us mindful in the days to come that whoever you place in our path is the person you want us to love in that moment. And give us the creativity, the grace, the Christ-like love to love unconditionally. And perhaps that will give us an opportunity to share the good news of the best love of all. And that neighbor, that stranger, might become a brother and sister in Christ. Let us be a loving church. Let us begin to transform this neighborhood one act at a time. And then beyond this neighborhood to our community here in Denton and Denton County in North Texas, use us to spread your love to draw people to you. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.